to put it really succinctly, stability breeds stability, whereas the inverse is that instability breeds instability. And so if we can support nations that are struggling to achieve stability, if we can help them to, you know, support that baseline of development, that does serve our own interests locally as well, um, because it's it's safer for us, it's safer for them, less resources are invested in having to give away aid, but these countries can also stop stop being aid recipients and start becoming trade partners. This is the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss American foreign policy, international relations, and the importance of U.S. engagement in the world. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who do not follow it closely. So I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president emeritus of the Minnesota International NGO Network. I also work as the Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota, a nonprofit that works to advance international understanding and engagement throughout Minnesota. Finally, I serve on the Minnesota Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, which is an advocacy organization dedicated to promoting the importance of American global engagement in international relations. And I'm joined in the virtual studio once again by Sasha Nicole, founder of the nonprofit Emanate International and currently the Advancement Officer for the local nonprofit Lift Up the Vulnerable, or LOVE, as you'll hear it referred to. They are an international NGO working primarily in Sudan and South Sudan to prevent the trafficking and oppression of vulnerable children and women. You may recall Sasha from her previous podcast appearance a couple years ago, which focused on Emanate International and the critical need for us to change the way we think about international development. So she is joined today to talk more about love, the status of international development in Sudan and South Sudan, and why international development is important for us here at home. So Sasha, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be here, Nick. Yeah. So first, can you just remind us a little bit about your background and tell us more about Lift Up the Vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. So I have spent over 10 years in international development. Um, most of my work was in Haiti, and I had done initiatives or supported initiatives that were locally led in the areas of fair trade, microfinance, and WASH, which is water and sanitation. And then recently, um, well, just this year in January, I started working for Lift Up the Vulnerable, uh, which is the only indigenously directed anti-trafficking network spanning Sudan and South Sudan, and they work with nearly 200 local leaders. That's pretty exciting. And I know um, part of what you focused on in our first episode together was specifically about development without displacement. So I wonder if you could tell me just a little bit about uh, that concept and maybe how Lift Up the Vulnerable is working in that regard. Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I'll be honest, a lot of my understanding of development has been in context of relative stability, mostly poverty being the issue. This is the first time I've really had to to come head on with how do you do development in a conflict scenario? And again, I have to say it really comes down to the power of local leadership and community support and community buy-in that has allowed this organization to, to be as successful as it has been. Um, all of the leaders are native to the area and really care deeply about uh, their people and advancing their own their own nations. 
Yeah, and having that type of local buy-in is so critical, as I think we can get to in a minute. But I suppose it makes sense for us to just briefly summarize what's actually happening in Sudan and South Sudan and why that's making it so difficult for uh, this international development work. Mm -hmm. So uh, Sudan and South Sudan's political history, as, as I understand it, really stems from British colonialism. Go figure, as so many things do. Uh, but especially during what's called the, the scramble for Africa in the late 1800s. So this was a period of rapid colonization where most of the major European powers began to quickly colonize almost all of Africa and carve it up into distinct spheres of influence with no regard to existing ethnic, linguistic, or political considerations. So for the first half of the 20th century, Sudan was a joint protectorate of Egypt and the United Kingdom. And following the Second World War, the UK and most European powers were devastated and they couldn't hold on to their empires anymore. So Egypt and the United Kingdom, they signed a treaty relinquishing sovereignty to the Independent Republic of Sudan in 1956. Now, this new republic immediately faced major challenges. It spanned nearly a million square miles and was situated directly between some of Africa's most violent states and regions. Now, even more concerning was the stark internal divide between the country's wealthier northern region, which was majority Arab and Muslim, and its less developed southern region, where most people were Christian. So this divide was at the center of two civil wars, the second of which would see the country split into two states. And in 2011, Sudan's southern territory held a referendum and seceded to form the newest state in the world, the Republic of South Sudan. So since then, there have been significant conflicts in both nations, unfortunately. In December 2013, a political power struggle broke out between President Kiir and his former deputy, Riek Machar, as the president accused Machar and 10 others of attempting a coup to overthrow the government. So fighting broke out, igniting a South, igniting what's called the South Sudanese Civil War. And Ugandan troops actually were deployed to fight alongside the South Sudanese government forces against the rebels there. Now, ultimately, this conflict lasted just until February 2020, when a peace deal was reached and a national unity government was formed with Machar, who was sworn in as the first vice president of the country. Now, um, my figures are correct, about 400,000 people were estimated to have been killed in the war, with more than 4 million people displaced. And nearly 1.8 million of those were internally displaced, and about 2.5 million fled to nearby countries like Uganda or um, just north to Sudan. So despite the official cessation of the civil war, violence between armed militia groups at the community level has continued throughout the country. Uh, the first democratic elections in South Sudan since the start of that war, they were scheduled for this year by that peace agreement that ended the war, but uh, the transitional government and the opposition both agreed last year to move them to late 2024 instead. So that's South Sudan. Uh, meanwhile, in Sudan itself, in April 2023, fighting broke out between rival armed factions in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum, which raised the fears of a return to a full-scale civil war again. Now, this conflict uh, is primarily a power struggle between the leaders of the Sudanese armed forces, the SAF, and the powerful paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. Now, these two groups are battling one another for control of the state and its resources. And amid pressure from foreign governments and rights groups, they did agree to resume some U.S. and Saudi-led negotiations in late October. However, neither side has really agreed to cease violence while these talks are ongoing. And previous negotiations have failed as the warring factions are not really holding up any sort of attempted ceasefire agreements. Now, uh, the U.S. is continuing to do what it can to renew a ceasefire and bring about immediate settlement, but the fighting really continues, especially in the Darfur region, 
Uh, and as of October of this year, at least 10,000 people have been killed and as many as 12,000 have been injured. And by some estimates, over 4.8 million have been internally displaced and more than 1.3 million others have fled the country. So all that is to say, these are two very difficult and complex situations here, which um, I imagine make it very difficult to provide humanitarian aid to these regions. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess, what are some of the obstacles that you've seen then in um, yeah. in implementing your mission there? I think it'd be good. I think if we can just um, step back for just a second too, and maybe clarify the difference between relief versus development, just for our listeners, since I don't know, yeah. you know, what their background is. And I think sometimes... Uh, those things can be um, used interchangeably in conversation, but they're actually very mm -hmm. different approaches. Um, so relief is focused more on short-term or humanitarian aid is also another expression for it, but short-term addressing short-term needs. So, you know, you have a natural disaster and people need clothes and food and shelter, you come in and provide that. Development is more geared towards allowing people to be self-sufficient and not in need of humanitarian or relief aid. And there are situations in which relief aid is entirely appropriate, like a natural disaster, for example, or a war. That's That falls into the category of relief being important. So that's what makes the mission of Lift Up the Vulnerable unique is that they are doing, they're doing a bit of both to be fully, fully um, transparent um, they start with relief in the sense of they provide protection, they ensure that basic necessities are, are taken care of, um, but they don't stop there. Then they move towards self-sufficiency and sustainability and investing in local people in their network to become the change makers within their society with the vision that eventually that won't, you know, they won't need um, aid because they will be equipped and empowered to to flourish on their own. Um, and so uh, to answer your question, you know, what does development look like on the ground in these conflict zones? Um, well, I can I can only speak to lift up the vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and so we work with three locally led partners who are all native to the area, many of whom have experienced um, the horrors of living in the in those in those conflicts um, where civilians are are really at great risk for not only losing their lives, but being exploited in in every way that you can imagine exploitation, not only in terms of um, sexual exploitation, but labor exploitation. Oftentimes children are, are forced to become child soldiers. And so they just don't have many rights or freedoms there. And so the, this um, organization has three tiers. The first approach is protection. Um, so that would be more of the humanitarian side of this um, to ensure especially as very often the people who come into this network are, are children or they're women and that makes them, or widows, I'm sorry, and that makes them exceptionally vulnerable because they don't have uh, some kind of a protection. They already, in these areas, um, there's a lot of, due to corruption, um, there there aren't, you know, the kinds of protections we have in place here in the United States. We don't, they don't have a, a police force you can trust. They don't have laws in place that are being followed and, and um, imposed. So, um, so that does make them more vulnerable. So first and foremost, they're protected. They're offered basic uh, medical care and clothing and such and food and nutrition and all of that. Then the next step in towards, you know, working towards development is education. And so for kids that is, they're offered um, pre-K through high school. And where possible, we try to get them funding to go on beyond into uh, upper level like university. 
Um, and then for women who it's not appropriate for them to go to school full time, we do offer literacy training because literacy is um, is a very low rate again in these areas. And then the third component of this is economic development, which is done in a few different ways. Um, one of which is simply hiring local people and making sure that they have jobs. And then the other one is uh, implementing smart agricultural systems that are climate resilient, um, that not only will allow our campuses to be food secure, that's the goal, so they won't need any more outside food aid, um, but that training has also been expanded to the local community. And so what that does is it allows the community members to cultivate gardens within their own homes, and that creates a level of safety because then they're not going to come to the school and try and steal food. But then they're also coached on taking that surplus of produce to market. So then they have some kind of a viable um, income that they can that they can actually manage and and generate themselves. So in short, uh, three tiers, protection, education and economic development. Yeah, and I think that's that's an excellent way of showing that. Ideally, everyone who's working in international development or relief aid ultimately wants to basically make get themselves out of their own job. Like right. they want to create the conditions where they no longer need their position anymore. And that is done through self-sufficiency to by, as your name suggests, lifting these individuals up so that they can carry on on their own without the need for any of this uh, assistance or further development. So um, that is the model. And hopefully with enough time and resources that can be accomplished. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So tell me a bit more about this uh, event you have coming up in January. You know, what's going to be the focus and how can people get involved? Yeah, great question. So, um, well, just for a little historical information on Lift Up the Vulnerable, it it originated uh, with a mission to prevent human trafficking as it's such a prevalent issue. And being in war zones, that makes people more vulnerable um, due to not only extreme poverty, but lawlessness as well to being trafficked. And January happens to be Human Trafficking Awareness Month. So in honor of Human Trafficking Awareness Month, um, Lift Up the Vulnerable, in um, also in collaboration with MIN, so for those of us located in the Twin Cities, it's the Minnesota International NGO Network, um, is hosting a free event at the Red Sea, which is located in Minneapolis. And again, for those that are local to the Twin Cities, that's a, uh, an, an African-owned business. It's, uh, it's Ethiopian food. So we hope that people will come and support a local African business. So come and um, grab a bite and then hear us talk a little bit about how poverty can make people more susceptible to uh, being trafficked. And we'll share a little bit about Love's model and how Love has has really served to mitigate that through empowerment of local people. Yeah, I think that'll be really helpful. And just thinking aloud about how poverty can uh, lead to people being trafficked, I wonder if there are takeaways that people here at home can try to understand with that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a problem that happens abroad, but that that is something that can happen here as well. It's because vulnerability happens all over the world and people can exploit that all over the world. It does. Absolutely. Yep. Um, then lastly, I guess the big overarching question, you know, why why should we care about what happens over in Sudan and South Sudan? You know, why why should we work so hard to fix problems abroad when we have problems here at home? Now, of course, I know an answer to that, uh, but I like to pose this question anyway, just to just to get people thinking about why we should care. Mm -hmm, absolutely. 
Um, well, I'm going to I'm going to not spend too much time on the humanitarian side of we should just care about people because we should. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that it's important to recognize that there's other good reasons. Um, I think our world is much more interconnected than we recognize today, whether it's based on supply chain, for example, or um, the refugee crisis or, you know, whatever it is that one event that happens in one country will lead to ripple effects that will affect other countries. Um, and so to put it really succinctly, stability breeds stability, whereas the yeah. inverse is that instability breeds instability. And so if we can support nations that are struggling to achieve stability, if we can help them to you know support that baseline of development, that does serve our own interests locally as well, um, because it makes. Well, I'll let you speak more to the national security side of this, but it it's it's safer for us, it's safer for them. Less resources are invested in having to give away aid, but these countries can also stop stop being aid recipients and start becoming trade partners, which is also advantageous for us, uh, you know, in the United States to have more economic potential there as well. So I kind of think of it as, um, you know, you have vicious cycles, which are negative cycles, or you can flip that and make it into a virtuous cycle where people can all do better and we all can flourish. Yeah. And I can't help but think of, you know, some of the problems that we do have here mm -hmm. at home, you know, issues of, of food insecurity or scarcity, you know, rising prices due to a volatility around the world, um, you know, even just overcrowding, homelessness, uh, yeah. issues like that. These are all issues that are just exacerbated by international instability, mm -hmm. by, you know, mass migration from people trying to escape uh, violent or impoverished situations. You know, you think about if if we can keep people wanting to stay in their home countries, because for the most part, they, they do want to stay there because it's where they're familiar, it's their home, it's where they grew up, but they just don't feel safe there anymore. If we can ensure that they can feel safe in these environments, that they can have a life and thrive there, then like you say, they actually contribute to their economies, they contribute to their societies, and that helps to, to fuel our success as well without putting additional strain on our own resources at home. So it's it's not just you know the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, because it does help to solve our problems at home by doing these, uh, these services abroad. At least that's the way that I look at it. And there's a lot of data to back up that you know, when we have stability abroad, it increases our own economic success here at home. Yep, absolutely. Everybody wins. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the national security side of things, of course, where, yeah. you, you know, you, you have these breakdowns of society in places like Sudan and South Sudan, and who usually comes in to fill that void? Oftentimes, it's, you know, non-state actors, maybe terrorist organizations. It's these individuals and these groups that um, that, that can directly threaten a lot of other places, not just in Africa, but around the world. And mm -hmm. that is, of course, a national security problem for us as well. So we want there to be stability. We want people to to not have to turn to those organizations because ultimately, if you know, if you're someone who is starving, you don't really care where the food comes from, whether mm -hmm. it's you know a virtuous uh, entity in our eyes or uh, a non-virtuous entity in our opinion. You just want to be you just want to be fed. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and on all that is to say that the uh, the types of money that you know the the amount of money that we're talking about here is not exactly substantial in in yeah. the broad scheme of things. I mean, 
what is it, less than 1% of the federal budget actually goes to the entirety of State Department and USAID and all these other programs. Yeah. Um, now, of course, I imagine you get some funding from state from USAID or one of these uh, other organizations, but um, I imagine a lot of it is private funding, correct? Uh, it looked at the vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, at this point, we haven't received any from USAID. Um, it's all it's all been privately privately procured. Yeah, but I do think that's a really valid point that you bring up because so often I hear people say, you know, they get frustrated that the U.S. is funding all this money um, abroad, and it sounds like a lot when you're talking about billions. It absolutely does sound like a lot, but when you consider that it's roughly on average about one percent, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. When you think about it, I think can we can we share one percent of our of our federal income to help generate a little bit of stability in the world? And I personally, of course, I'm very biased, but I think that we can. Yeah, and it's an investment, really. You know, this this yeah. does return dollars back to us because uh, a lot of the resources that you know are are either purchased or utilized here at home are then sent abroad, so it stimulates the economy here, mm-hmm. and um, that economic growth that comes out of these you know successful these success stories that mm-hmm. powers the American economy as well, and it mm-hmm. provides places where you know local industries like here in Minnesota can actually uh, invest. They can expand their operations into some of these places, which then fuels both our economy and theirs. So it's a win all around, really. Absolutely. Yep. Sasha, thank you so much for joining and for all that you've done in the international affairs arena. Um, And congratulations on your very recent graduation into the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition's (laughs) Minnesota Advisory Committee. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Nick, thanks so much for taking time to just talk through these these topics and to really bring to light a part of the world that um, doesn't always get a whole lot of attention and a lot of focus, and and also to take a moment and really highlight the 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 transformational work that Lift Up the Vulnerable is doing in in war zones to really create change makers in their own in their own communities and by extension in their own countries because we really have hope that. Um, that this transformation will last not just for for the present, but also for generations to come. So thank you so much for your time and just allowing us the opportunity to to elevate our mission and to share about it. And then lastly, for anyone in the Twin Cities, if you're in town on January 18th, I really hope to see you at the Red Sea in Minneapolis. That's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to once again, thanks, Asha, for joining the show today. You can check out more about her work at liftupthevulnerable.org. Thanks, of course, as always, to our listeners, readers of the blog, and be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.